Good morning, everyone. Today I'm gonna be, oh, <laughs> today I'm gonna be reading John 20, verses 19 to 30. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for the fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came down and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After this, he showed them his hand on and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, one of the 12, one of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But when he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week, a week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas were with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Thank you. So the good news, the gospel, paradox. So for the last number of weeks, we've been thinking of a variety of paradoxes, opposites, if you like, two things mixing that seem contradictory. You can think of pain and joy. Interesting how often those two go together. There's pain and a lot of suffering. And then all of a sudden, just suddenly, quickly, there can be joy. Um, giving birth to a child is obviously a good example of that, pain. And then joy, happiness, sadness, life, death. Dryness, feeling alive. It's all, it's all there, and life is always this, this mix, and we go from one to the other um, pretty much every day, some dimension of paradox, contradictions, one up beside the other. And so today we look at a story, John 20, about uh, the disciples, Christ as the risen Lord comes to the disciples. And they are, you know, they are afraid. Well, look at that. They're afraid. There is doubt. And that's the connection with joy and with resurrection. So death, resurrection, Thomas particularly. So we'll think of doubt and faith. We think of trust and we think of mistrust. How do, how do those go together in our lives. So the, it comes to us in two scenes. And the first scene is Jesus and his disciples. And then the second scene is Jesus and particularly Thomas. So we'll just read through the text and I'll talk about it as we go. When it was evening on that day, 
the first day of the week. So the first day of the week is Sunday. And it's interesting, very early in the Christian tradition, Christians gathered on the Sunday. And, and one of the reasons why is that uh, on the Sabbath, of course, Saturday, it was a complete day of rest. So to get together, um, you know, was, was not accepted. And so it was easier for them to gather than on the first day. And they also gather in the evening because Sunday is a work day, so they're working. So there's a variety of practicalities that are going on. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the, door, the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews. By the way, Christians meeting on Sunday, you know, there's no commandment that says you have to meet on Sunday. You could meet on Saturday. Seventh-day Adventists, in their tradition, they meet on Saturday. Any day is possible to worship God. We all know that, right? But there's enough references on the first day of the week that they met that Christians have, over the years, met then on the first day, which is Sunday. So it, it's, it's not a rule, but that's the pattern, the tradition that's happened. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jewish leadership, all right? So they are locked in this room in fear. It's nighttime, it's dark. You just imagine this, right? They're in this upper room, some house, and the doors are locked. And they are fearful, we're told. So Christ has risen, and, and they, you know, they've heard already from the women that Christ is risen, but nevertheless, hearing is one thing, believing is another, and so they are in the room, the upper room, and they are afraid. What are they afraid of? Well, perhaps afraid of folks who are going to come and treat them badly, perhaps arrest them as they arrested Jesus, um, mock them, hurt them, persecute them, hit them. I mean, I, there, there's all those kinds of thoughts. What We don't know what's going to go on. And when we don't know, we get fearful. And so they don't know and they're afraid. Locked in the room, afraid. And I think as John, we know John speaks on a variety of levels, right? He's always speaking on various levels. So when we see the disciples there meeting in a locked room and full of fear, it also speaks to our own reality. That we often lock ourselves up in a room, if you like, full of fear. And often with fear is anger. I bet you the disciples had a fair bit of anger going on here too. They had spent three years with Jesus. It ended very badly in their mind. It could not have been worse. Their leader is crucified as a criminal. Romans and the leadership of the city are persecuted him, had him killed. So they know all that. So here they are, afraid, and I would say a measure of anger. That's where they're at. 
And so we also can be locked up, afraid, and angry. Close the doors. Close the doors of our heart. We draw the circle really tight around us. Don't let people in. We're, we don't want to let people in. We're afraid of that. Or we're angry about it. So I think right off the top we can, we can relate to that. We won't have any show of hands, but I, I would say some of us probably have at times in our lives, maybe not at the moment, we've, we've kind of drawn the circle pretty tight and we're, we're not very happy. And that's the disciples here. So I think we can relate to that image. So the first thing is fear. That's where they're at, fear. So then Jesus comes and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. So it's a locked door, right? So we don't know how Jesus got in that room. We don't know. Did he knock and they opened it? The text seems to suggest that he appears. But all of a sudden, Jesus is there. And he says, peace be with you. Peace is shalom. Shalom with you. That's his word. Shalom. And we know shalom is not just a greeting. It's not just hello, although shalom was a, a greeting. But shalom is its fullness. I, I want you to be full. I want you to be happy. I don't want you to be closed up in fear. I don't want that for you. Shalom, and as Muiwa mentioned, it's re repeated a few times in our text. I want you to experience shalom. Where there is no shalom, I want you to have shalom. And part of our mandate going forth as a church is where there is no shalom, we're invited to bring shalom. So in our community, how can we be instruments of shalom? Well, that's part of the food drive. The food drive, we want to bring food practically, help people in need. Rob has told me he volunteers up the street twice a week at the food drive, I mean at the food bank, and there's a big need for food right now. So at Christmas time, Advent is bigger than ever. So to help meet people with food, that's, that's a step in bringing shalom. But we always have to ask ourselves that. How are we bringing shalom to our community? Are we doing that? How are we doing that? In what ways can we do it? Peace be with you. Shalom. How can we know the shalom of God? After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. He shows them his wounds. It's interesting. I find that interesting. He, he says shalom, and then he shows him his wounds. Wounds in his hands, wounds in his side. Remember? Nails through his hands, a spear through his side. He shows them his wounds. So one, he wants them to know that, hey, I am Christ, I am the Lord, and, and, and here I am, look. But it's also interesting that he appears to them as the wounded Savior. And he says, look at my wounds. Later to Thomas, he's going to say, touch me, touch my wounds. So Jesus appears as the wounded Savior. Savior, and we see this in Isaiah, but he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. Isaiah 53, it's good to go back and read that whole chapter. This is a key text for the people of Israel. There's a museum in Jerusalem, and, and it, it has some of the best ancient texts. And when you go in this museum, the first thing you see is the scroll of Isaiah. It's a complete scroll of Isaiah. And it's unrolled, and it goes right across. It would be almost as big as this church, the width. It's huge. It's all under glass. The scroll of Isaiah, and they have it opened it right up. They value it incredibly. That's the opening piece when you go into the museum, Jerusalem. So the wounded Savior. I remember a time when, you know, when I was in high school, I had a good friend, Bob Say. Bob ended up going into radio, had a whole career in radio. Just finished up, now moved down east. Sold his house high, moved east, all right? There he is, down in New Brunswick. Anyway, for some reason we were visiting Montreal. He was in a group that I had anyway. We were down there and we went into Notre Dame Cathedral. I don't know if you know Notre Dame, it's, it's beautiful. And, and there's a, bu a blue hue right across the front of, of the church. It's really quite magnificent. And I remember, you know, we were looking, of course, there's a crucifix, big crucifix in front of Notre Dame. We were talking about that, and, and you know, I'm a Pentecostal kid at that point, and I'm saying, well, you know, you Catholics, you talk a lot about Christ on the cross, Rebecca. We don't do that so much. We talk about the risen Christ. That, that, so that was my little preaching, my sermon, I'd Bob say, when I'm, what, 16 or 17 or something. But, you know, I think back on that, and I think, unfortunately, sometimes we don't think enough of Christ as the wounded Savior, and what does that mean for us? Why does Jesus say, look at my wound? Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 9, he talks about Christ as the indescribable gift. There's a story of the Jesuits, and the Jesuits go to Japan, and they know that they are going to be treated badly and persecuted. This is true. But they decide, as followers of Christ, they talk about the sacred heart, a red heart of Christ. They know they're going to be treated badly, but they go anyway, 400 Jesuit priests. They go, they're all taken, and they're all crucified on one mass. 400 Jesuit priests crucified. They knew they were going to be treated badly. I don't know if they expected that. But there are paintings, and you can, paintings of the Jesuits crucified. Why do they go? Well, I mean, why? What's driving them? What's their motivation? Well, for Jesuits, it's always about the sacred heart of Christ. It's the red heart. It's identifying with Jesus and his life of compassion and sacrifice. And for the Jesuits, it's a desire to personalize and to experience and be the love of Christ, the sacred heart of Christ for others. That's, that's their whole, that's their mandate. 
I want to be the love of Christ for others. That's what I want. That's what they take upon themselves. And if that means we go to a new nation, they've never heard of really about Christ and so on, and if that means we're all crucified, they're ready to do it. Whether that was a good thing to do or not, I don't know, but that's what they did. So it's, a, it's something for us to pause about. Well, I mean, what drives you to want to be the love of Christ for others? Does, does that even drive you? Here we are as Baptists sitting quite safely here in Weston. It's a whole different realm. Do I want to be, Alan Davy, do I want to be the love of Christ to others? Do you want to be the love of Christ to others? Really? Jesus is the sender. We're the sent ones. He wants to send us. Well, what, what's all that about? Well, he wants us to be the love of Christ to others. So that's a decision, right? That's a decision to identify with Christ on a serious level and to make that my mandate. That's what I want to do. So we all have to think about that. For the Jesuits, one of the motivating realities and empowerment are the wounds of Christ, the sacred heart. It doesn't have to be that for you or for me, but we are invited to be the love of Christ to others. If you're a teacher in a school, if you have your own business, in your own interactions, it's not just about making money, right? It's, it's about, as Christians, being the love of Christ to others. I mean, that's, that's, our, that's our mandate. It's easy to forget that for all of us. That's demanding. Anyway, that's where we are. So we need to think about that a little bit. The disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Finally, when it finally sunk in, they, they begin to believe that this is Jesus, and then they, they start rejoicing. We started the service with rejoice, the Lord is King. Rejoice. Last week we looked at John 16. We're told that now you experience pain, but you will experience joy. Here we are this week in John 20. Now they are experiencing joy. Sadness, death, joy, resurrection. Beside each other. So can we experience joy? Kara. Beth was a trio with Sharon Thiessen, Mike years ago, the Kara trio, joy trio. Can we bring joy to others? When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. This is kind of coming to this first, this first scene, the climax of it. He breathed on them. It's the only time this verb is used in the entire New Testament. Special verb, he breathed on them and he says, Receive the Holy Spirit. Maybe in John's mind, there's an allusion back to Genesis 2-7, where God has formed Adam and Eve, and then he breathes into them. Breathes into them life. And they become living persons. God breathes into them. Imagine that. You and I go back to that long history. God breathed into our ancestors, and we had life. 
And so the whole thing goes on now with breath. Inhale, exhale. If you're meditating, inhale, exhale. All around the globe, all the animals, everybody's breathing. Receive the Holy Spirit, Jesus says. So this is John's version, if you like, of Pentecost. Breathe the Spirit. Luke 2, remember, the day of Pentecost. Here John presages that. Christ says, receive the Spirit. Well, I know one thing. If we're going to show the love of Christ completely, that has to be through the Holy Spirit in us. The enlivening presence of Jesus. That's, that's the presence of the Spirit. The Spirit of God is the presence of Jesus in us. Jesus sends the Spirit to us. And the Spirit indwells in us, and then we can give and pass on life. Otherwise, we'll still be stuck back in fear and anger and everything else. Receive the Holy Spirit. Breathe in them. Note, he does not chide them, does not get angry with them. He does not say, you guys deserted me in my greatest hour of need, even though they did. He just accepts them, shows love to them, and indeed empowers them. So, what do we got? We got them, they're in the room in fear. Jesus comes to speak a word of peace. He shows them his wounds. Their response is one of joy. And then he breathes the Holy Spirit and empowers them. That's what's going on here. That's the first scene. So that, that's similar for what Christ will do for us as we look to him. We don't have to just play the world's game, whatever the world's game is. It's not all just about achievement and success and money. Here we have Christ empowering these folk to be his representatives. Paul says Christ's ambassadors. Second scene, Jesus and Thomas. Thomas is a skeptic. We'll just read this a little bit. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So he wasn't at that first meeting. Christians are always having meetings. All right, it was then and it is now too, and everybody else. So he wasn't at the first meeting, he missed that. Sorry, can't make it. So the other disciples told him, well, you should have been there because a good thing happened at that meeting. You know what happened? Jesus showed up. Woo! He says, I find that hard to believe. I don't believe that. Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails in my hands, I will not believe. It emphasizes that. Putting it at the end of the verse, that's the emphasis. In no way will I believe. That's how it reads. I will not believe. Forget it. I don't care what you guys are saying. I will not believe unless I see that. So Thomas is presented as a bit of a grumpy dwarf, you know, in the, in the Gospels, when he, he, three times he has talked about. This is one. Another one is in the Upper Room Discourse, and Jesus says to him, before the famous I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says, I know where, you know where I'm going, Jesus says. Thomas puts up his hand and says, I have no idea where you're going. Where are you going? 
I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus responds. At another point earlier in the gospel, Jesus is having, you know, people are up to get him, and so he decides anyway to go to Jerusalem. And then, G and then Thomas says, okay, let's go and die with him. That that's his response. Let's go and die with him. It's not a good idea. We shouldn't be going, but we're going to go and die with him. So he's always like that. He's a bit of a pessimist. So it's not really fully surprising that he would say, you know, oh, great, I'm happy. He says, no, I'm a skeptic. So we can be maybe skeptics too, like Thomas. A week later, first Sunday again, next week, disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. And all the although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. There's the word shalom again. Shalom to you. And then he says specifically, to Thomas, okay? Here's, we get closer to the paradox. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Literally, that is, do not have unfaith, apistos, but have faith, pistos, that's it. Apistos, no faith, pistos, faith. Do not, it's translated here as doubt, but it's really no faith. Don't have no faith, but have faith. There is a part of us where, you know, you can't get around doubt. Everybody has some doubts. We as Christians have some doubts just because we don't know everything. We don't know how it all will work out, so there may be some doubts. The certainty, someone has written the book, The Myth of Certainty, that you can be certain on everything, well, that's a myth. You can't be. We aren't. And it wouldn't matter what faith religion it is. Nobody's certain about everything. So there can be doubt. But that's not what really Jesus is going after. He is going after mistrust. Do not mistrust, but trust. Erickson says, to be a healthy individual... We have to figure that out. Unhealthy people mistrust everything. Healthy people can move into trust. So do not be full of mistrust. If you are, then psychologically you're, not, you're going to stay in troubled waters. We have to move into trust. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here. It's can you trust me? Can you trust God? Can you trust your creator and the maker of the universe? Can you trust that he is there for you and on your side? He is Abba for you. Can you trust that? It's not about doubt, having you know, certainty on every theological point. That's not the point. It's trust. Can you live in trust? Can we live with open hands before God? Trust. Or are we like that? See, only you know that in your heart. You know where you're at on that. Trust or mistrust. That's the kernel. That's the nut we have to get at. Not just doubt. And so when Jesus says, do not doubt, he's saying, Thomas, trust me. I've been with you three years. You've seen what your, your brothers in the faith have heard and seen. 
Trust. Open your life up to trust. Faith in God begins right there for you and for me. That's where it begins. It does not begin with some theological argument saying, oh, okay, the light's gone on now. No. Somewhere in the line in your life, you've got to trust. Even though you don't know nothing. Trust. And then you start walking forth in trust. And in that reality, the Spirit will speak to us. That's it. No one's going to convince you of anything. Somewhere along the line, we have to trust. And then we move into that with the doubts, you see, with all the stuff we don't get. But energy comes from moving forth in trust. In spite of all the contradictions and challenges, that's what Jesus is going at with Thomas, I think. Will you believe? Meaning, not, not, not dogma, Will you open up your heart to my heart? And then things will start to happen. I remember talking to a guy years ago, and he says, well, I won't tell you anything about Jesus until I got it all figured out. When I get it all figured out, then I'll start talking about Christ, because then I'll have an answer. I'm saying, well, then you're never going to have it. Because you're never going to get all the answers. But that was his position. I've got to have all the answers. That's not it. Will you trust? So that's the dilemma. <laughs> the dilemma is to open up our hearts and say yes. Do not doubt but believe. Thomas then answers, my Lord and my God. Did he put his hands on Jesus? We don't know that. Maybe he did. Or maybe he heard that, and then he says, my Lord and my God. Kyrios and Theos, my Lord and my God. I believe. It's full circle in the Gospel of John. If you go back in John, John 1.12, it says that Christ, the Word, the Logos, comes so that people will believe. Well, just read it. John 1.12 goes this way. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. That's how the gospel begins. Will we open up our hearts and say, yes, trust. At the end, here's the closing argument. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Meaning, John says, that's what we have to do. That's what we're invited to do. And then live in the reality of saying, my Lord and my God. In spite of all the contradictions and the hurts, and the next week you're getting a medical report saying that, you know what, it's not good, Davey, it's not good. Right in the midst, out of the blue. And then we're still called to then trust. That's, that's when we're really called to say trust. Notice how Jesus ends, blessed are those who have not seen and yet come to believe. He's talking to future generations. Blessed, it's a, it's a beatitude, blessed are those folk who will trust even, then, even when they don't see me in my wounds. So if we can say trusting then, Jesus says, good for you, makarios, blessed are you. 
So as we close up, what have we got? Jesus meets us where we are at. I like that. He meets Thomas in his doubt. He meets us in our anger. He meets us in our fear. He meets us when we're crying out. He meets us with us when, in our anxiety. What, whatever those are, whatever those are. Jesus meets us where we are at, number one. And he speaks to us on that level. That's a good thing. And he can only do that through his spirit, right? It's not just physical Jesus. One person can't do that. His spirit can be in all of us. Because each of our situations can be quite different. Jesus comes to us as the wounded Savior to bring his peace. I say us Pentecostals, I mean, sorry, us Baptists, right? We're both. We need to maybe have a little bit more of thinking about the wounded Savior. Maybe that wouldn't be such a bad thing. Maybe I should have listened to John, I mean, my friend Bob say, yeah, well, Davey, maybe you need to think about Christ on the cross just a bit more. He didn't say that. The wounded Savior speaks to us, right? That's interesting. And then finally, thirdly, we are sent ones. We receive the Holy Spirit to be sent. That's our true vocation. Boy, you're an entrepreneur. You sell a lot of art. Good for you, big guy. But your true vocation is deeper than that, which you know. Of course you know that. Simon, you're brilliant. PhD. Excellent. Do all kinds of wonderful things. True vocation is deeper. All around the room. That's a good thing. We are sent once. Imagine, we are sent once. If the whole story is true, if, if this, all of this is actually true, well, I, you know, I'm saying it is, but if there's any, any, any idea of doubt there with that, imagine that the creator of the universe wants you to partner with him and engage and be the love of Christ to others. That's pretty darn cool. So may we say yes to that. Receive the Holy Spirit. Breathe. Breathe. In scuba diving, you know, everything slows down. And the one thing you're conscious of in scuba diving is breath. Every breath you hear, because it goes in and out of your, you know, your breathing apparatus. <laughs> breathe, breathe. So may we breathe in Christ's love. May we breathe it out to others. May we live in trust and not mistrust. May we have faith and not a lack of faith. In Christ's name, amen. amen. amen.